What if we took the global financial system and pointed it fighting climate change? I want you to know that when we say degen, it's a term of endearment on the show. But in every transaction, we turn a degen into a regen, you know, try to make the world a better place. Welcome to iDegen. This is a special episode. We're going to chat with Kevin Seagraves and Zach Herring from Nifty Apes. They've recently come out of stealth mode with an NFT lending platform, and they've bravely agreed to an open source audit with us. Welcome, gentlemen, to iDegen. Hello. Thanks for having us. Super stoked to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Before we jump in to this uh, audio audit of sorts, let's get through some uh, basic kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and uh, how you ended up building an NFT lending platform. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll jump in first. So yeah, my name's Kevin Seagraves. I've been in the blockchain and Ethereum space uh, since 2017. Um, I got to make friends with Kevin Awaki over at Gitcoin before it was called Gitcoin. And um, here in the Boulder, Colorado community, we ended up going out to LA and winning a hackathon together. And that got me a job at the Boston Consulting Group. So I got to fly around the world talking to Fortune 100 companies about Bitcoin and decentralization and protocols, that kind of stuff. And worked with the World Wildlife Funds, the DeBeers Group, and a large family office on an event ticketing platform, doing various proof of concepts and uh, MVP style applications. After about a year of that, I came back to the Ethereum ecosystem and was one of the co-founders of, of the ETH security community. So we interviewed about 30 of the top individuals and firms in the space about best practices, what tools existed, what was still needed, how are we communicating and coordinating those kinds of things. So still have, it's still an active, uh, still an active group. There's a large telegram community that's still a major place where, where things are coordinated around, right? There's a major hack and you're like, oh, something's happening. Let's let's break off into a small group and, and talk about it and coordinate coordinate action. There was also like a one day unconf around ETH Berlin. You know, I made a led a HDH panel at DevCon in Prague, uh, those kinds of things. Around that same time, I came back to the Gitcoin family and had the opportunity to to uh, be the lead engineer on Gitcoin Grants V0. So that's now become you know, what it is today, industry leading product in its, in its category, you know, funding distribution for, for open source and public goods, which is really awesome. So super proud of that. And the team over there is really taking it to uh, next level stuff. So that's cool. Um, left that in early 2019, then was a co-founder and head of product at a group called Charge. We were trying to do credit cards in the blockchain. So how can use case was, how can someone purchase an NFT with a credit card back in 2019 before NFTs were cool and nobody cared. So we ended up pivoting to a more traditional FinTech app um, that was for dealing with virtual cards. Um, I left that in March of 2021, went to a Buddhist monastery for a while, um, kind of floated around, did the digital nomad thing. And then just started building with the Moonshot Collective and the Build Guild, you know, shout out to, um, Austin Griffith and, um, you know, all the stuff he's doing over there and in contributing to that project with Scaffold ETH, this idea for Nifty Apes came up 
you know, just kind of wanted to, to jam all of these crazy DeFi value props into the same uh, website, the same, same platform, and then put a pawn shop out front. And so you could go get a loan against your NFT and go to, uh, go to, go to the DeFi casino and spin the wheel and try to make a bunch of money to pay back your loan. It was, it was really just a fun, playful thing. Um, and in the process came up with a way to do better NFT lending. And that's kind of what Nifty Hips has become. And it's, you know, we ended up developing the Harbinger style lending auction, which we might get to talk a little bit about um, in a little bit. But that's that's how we started. That's my my history and how I ended up coming to start Nifty Hips with Zach. Kind of fell into it, just trying to build cool stuff that was fun and exciting. And we think we've got something uh, special here. So excited to get it out into the world and, and get people using it. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing your story. Zach, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came into this group. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm Zach Herring. Uh, I've been a product designer, a researcher, and a people leader for about 12 years. I I got into the crypto space a little later than Kevin. So I was, I started essentially like first of 2018. Um, We've got uh, essentially started over at Consensus, providing a lot of the, doing a lot of like the design research and product strategy stuff for um, Web2 companies, uh, Joe Lubin hired me and a couple of other folks to do the same thing over at Consensus. So um, got to work with a whole bunch of amazing teams there. Um, essentially, yeah, just, I don't know. It's if, it's weird to think about Consensus then versus Consensus now because Consensus now, I would say, is like a grown-up adult um, company, whereas Consensus then was essentially a pirate ship. Um, it, was, it was essentially Joe Lubin finding really interesting people and then paying them to go build on Ethereum. And it was a, it was a cold start. It was a, trying to solve the cold start problem um, and kind of just bootstrap an ecosystem. So got to work with a whole bunch of amazing people there. Um, there was, you know, I, I tell people that like one of my favorite moments uh, was with a project that didn't actually go as far as we'd hoped, but I was literally sitting at a table doing a workshop with a, uh, someone who wrote space law at the UN and another guy who was the youngest flight director over at NASA. And I was just like, what am I, what am I doing here? Um, it's just fast. It's fascinating. And that's something I've like really loved about the crypto space in general, right? It's just, it, it attracts all sorts of people with really deep discipline sets from all over. Um, and it really allows people to express new and, and really interesting ideas. Um, you know, on, on the blockchain, which has just been fascinating. So worked at Consensus for a while, started a grants program for um, builders in the space uh, called Relays. Um, some alumni of that are like Atomic Finance, Idle Finance. Um, went, uh, worked a little bit uh, with Protocol Labs, um, left Consensus in 2020 to kind of just do my own thing, uh, which I got to kind of bounce around on and, and work with a whole bunch of really interesting projects there. So Bitcoin Core, um, worked with their wallet uh, team, um, specifically like some user research studies that they were they were wanting to know how people use their wallet, the wallet that came that comes with you know like a Bitcoin Core. Um, got to work with Arweave over at their Open Web Foundry. Um, big fans of of uh, those guys over there. Uh, and then um, my last like big project was uh, uh, MIT has a digital currencies initiative, and they were building a. Um, basically, you're building a proof of concept of a, a U.S. Uh, CBDC, central central bank digital currency, um, and they basically partnered with another local research group uh, to run a study on how people think about 
uh, adopting new forms of value transmission. So um, got to work with a team there and really test out a lot of the hypothesis like hypotheses that we, we have whenever we talk about crypto adoption, um, you know, remittance payments and banking the unbanked and uh, et cetera, and uh, got to really dive in on a quant and qual level um, to do that, which was a lot of fun. Um, also incredibly academic. So um, by about the, uh, I would say like September, August or September of last year, I was like, man, I just want to hack on something and ship something cool. Um, one of my favorite people uh, to hack with uh, Kevin, he moved back to Boulder um, after uh, uh, heading out to LA during the crypto winter. And uh, I basically, like, as soon as I heard he was back in town, I was like, oh man, we got to get coffee. Uh, I want to hear about what you're building. And, and uh, yeah, let's just, let's, let's jam. Um, and he kind of told me about this, this initial sort of idea, like the seeds of the idea was essentially, you know, a, a pawn shop with a casino strapped to it and powered by Harbinger style lending auctions. Uh, and that just really excited me. So uh, kind of spun everything down. We started hacking on stuff. And, uh, you know, a year later, here we are about to about to launch. So uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a ride. That's wild. That that description is uh, that gets me pulled in pretty quickly. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, high level how the lending works, the pawn shop, you know, and, and I would love to hear about the Harburger auctions as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first off, like what is Nifty Apes? Nifty Apes is a liquidity protocol that kind of at its core, right? Um, a borrower with an NFT can lock that NFT in the Nifty Apes smart contract and then receive liquidity from a lender. Um, it's a multiple lenders, uh, multiple lenders solution. Um, you'll see like there's three different types of, of uh, solution out there. And Kevin will probably like actually go into this when he talks about the technical side. But Essentially, a lender locks liquidity into Nifty Apes. Uh, they make offers uh, based off of those specific uh, specific NFTs, and it can either be on a specific asset or collection of assets. Um, and in fact, if you know the uh, contract address and the token address, you can actually create offers like liquidity offers on assets before they're even minted. Right? Um, borrowers come in, they connect their wallet. Um, and then essentially, once they connect their wallet, the front end shows a lightly opinionated view of all of the offers all this assembled, assigned to their asset. Uh, and then they select one to take a, take a loan out on. Um, or if they want just like the most frictionless, easiest, uh, easiest uh, user experience, uh, we're just calling it the money button. They hit the money button, boom, they get, uh, they get the funds deposited uh, to, their, uh, to their wallet. Uh, almost instantly. So um, that's like super high level uh, what it is um, in terms of like just how it works. Cool. Yeah. And I'm happy to give more more detail on the Harbinger auctions. So um, yeah, Harbinger style lending auction takes loans and turns them into a public good. So no bank or lender ever owns a loan. So it's a new paradigm, a new conception of ownership for uh, this type of financial agreement, right? And this is one of the most important financial uh, constructs in the global economy, right? Which represents hundreds of trillions of dollars. It's the global lending market. So we're really trying to do something radical and innovative here, right? So cool. We now have turned loans into a public good and capital has to compete for the right to receive interest payments from these loans and the right to 
seize the asset should the borrower default. So it's a it's it's a pretty it's a completely new model that we have created at Nifty Apes. So how does that actually work? I'm going to reiterate a little bit about what Zach just said. So lenders come to the protocol, they deposit their capital, could be ETH or another ERC20. We're supporting um, native ETH um, on launch. There'll be DAI as a fast follow. Then we can support other things that are supported by Compound. Because what happens is they come in, deposit their capital. That capital is put into Compound underneath. So they're always earning a passive yield, whether they're in an active yield on an, on an NFT or not, or an active uh, loan, rather. So let's say 2% on DAI. They can then go um, and make an offer on any asset or collection in existence, right? As long as you know the contract address um, and or the NFT ID, you can make an offer. So all 10,000 board apes at once or board ape four, five, six, it's you know, 50K at 5% for 90 days. You now have uh, locked capital that's earning a passive yield with many market valuations and, and many offers that a borrower can now come connect their wallet and with two button clicks, execute a loan against that standing offer, right? Well, the loan is executed. And now once the loan is executed, any lender can buy out the loan at any time if they're willing to provide better terms, right? So they can provide a larger line of credit, a lower interest rate or a longer duration on the loan and take over that loan, right? Um, they can take over that loan and receive those interest payments. And so you're basically, um, incentivizing market actors to uh, drive towards a true market valuation. Like what are the best possible terms available? Um, what does the market tolerate? What is the risk on this asset that um, capital is willing to provide? And it's, it's agnostic on who provides that. It's just whatever, whatever the best terms are. So borrowers have the experience of an automatically refinancing loan that improves over time, right? They don't have to do anything. It's it's a permissionless refinancing experience. So now that it's not a, it's not an adjustable rate mortgage. It's just a better rate mortgage, right? And so instead of in traditional finance, um, you have lenders and banks squatting on capital and squatting on value. You know they've just provided capital and they're no longer providing any any work or or um, contributing value into the system. And yet they get to benefit over time. Um, as typically, let's, let's take mortgages as an example, houses tend to go up in value. And every month, the borrower is paying down their mortgage payment, de-risking the loan, right? So there's, over time, more value and less risk. Um, and so lenders own that loan. They can resell it um, on down the line, making more money, while the borrower has a hard time refinancing and having exposure to any of that value. In this system, it makes... Uh, lenders compete and borrowers have to, uh, borrowers now have the experience of, of better terms over time. And the ecosystem has um, basically exposure and, and access to better pricing data for not only the loan itself, but also the derived uh, true market value for the NFT, which is, is actually really valuable for the ecosystem. And it's a hard problem that hasn't been solved yet. So at a high level, that's, that's how it works in some of the value props, um, kind of how we're approaching this, you know, kind of trying to lead a, lead a revolution of you know, changing ownership for a very significant asset class. Um, that's what I got.
Yeah, that was amazing uh, descriptions, Kevin. I really appreciate that. And you covered, you know, what is Nifty Apes and and why you built it and, you know, what a Harbinger auction is. Um, I'm curious, like, who is your, who's using this? Who's your kind of target demographic for Nifty Apes? Yeah, so right now, so NFTs are a certificate of ownership, right? And so that could be a piece of digital art, could be a picture of a monkey, could be a you know, video game item, or it could be the title to your car, uh, the deed to your house, commercial real estate, corporate assets, right? And so right now the market is really just in that digital art kind of NFT, um, kind of meme crypto uh, user. And really this is like leverage for your NFT trading portfolio, right? It's like, oh, I wanna go get a loan against my board eight. I'm gonna buy a mutant. I'm gonna get a loan against my mutant. I'm gonna buy a doodle. I'll get a loan against my doodle. I'm gonna sweep the crypto's floor, right? So you can lever yourself up um, in NFT trading. And so initially that's, that's more of our target users, like people who own NFTs and want to buy more NFTs because um, we're speaking their language, right? They wanna, this is the game they're playing. Uh, we can also provide it, you know, more DeFi integration. So oh, I take out this loan. Um, I need to go somewhere to get a yield that is enough to pay back my loan. And whether you're doing that through NFT trading or you're doing that through DeFi, um, it's kind of up to the choice of the user. But those are really the people we want to serve first. Uh, we can also offer stuff like purchase with financing. So people who want to buy NFTs uh, but can't afford you know, a blue chip right now. Well, with an FDA's purchase with financing button, you know, you can look at a marketplace like OpenSea um, and a $100,000 asset, you only have 50K in your wallet. You can't afford that yet. But with the purchase with financing button, it'll say, oh, there's an offer for 50K at 5% for 90 days. It'll be initiate that loan, draw down that liquidity, combine it with the value in your wallet and purchase that asset you couldn't otherwise afford. Um, so that is, kind of a high level um, user on the borrower side, people who want to buy NFTs or have leverage on their NFT portfolio. Um, there's also the lender who's another user. And so people who are trying to, to seek, you know, high yield on minimized risk um, on ETH and other ERC-20 based assets. Um, Zach, caring anything to add to that? No, I mean, I think that, I think that pretty well covers it. <laughs> It's ultimately it's going to be lenders, lenders wanting yield and exposure to these assets, and then folks who want liquidity, on uh, what liquidity on their NFTs. The NFT holders, as they are right now, are essentially house rich, cash poor people on steroids. Uh, so that's what a lot of these liquidity protocols are are attempting to solve. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, and that that brings me back. Like in the future, right now we are just NFT trader kind of focused, but you know. One day I would love to get a, a my mortgage for my house on Nifty Apes, right? If I got a let's say six percent um, interest rate on a thirty-year loan on a house, that's that's pretty high right now. But over time, you know, as as interest rates drop and my house increases in value, I could just have an a, an automatically improving mortgage that where my interest payment just goes down over time um, without me having to do anything. That's that's where we're going in the future. That's the dream. Great. That was 
That was a great answer, and I appreciate that. And so we talked a little bit about the uh, DGen side of things, and I want you to know that when we say DGen, it's a term of endearment on the show, you know, with the, t- the title of our podcast being IDGen. But I also noticed that you guys um, have a Regen side of Nifty Apes and that you give, I believe it's 1% to public goods. And uh, I wanted to know what, how you came about this decision and why it was important for you to do this. Yeah, totally. So um, a couple different reasons how we arrived there. Um, you know, both Zach and I were involved in Gitcoin in the past, you know, very public goods focused. You know, I was the, the lead engineer on, on Gitcoin grants, um, which now uses quadratic funding to distribute, you know, funding to open source and, and public goods projects. So it's very values aligned on that side. Um, and what, what Harbinger taxes, so this is a, we're, we're applying a Harbinger style thing to lending. But what Harbinger taxes do is it's typically you are, there's an asset, you have a self-assessed valuation of that asset. And in order to maintain use of that asset, you have to pay a tax based on that self-assessed valuation. And that tax then goes back to the network or ecosystem from which that asset derives value, right? So you can imagine it like a subway, right? And we're paying a fee to ride the subway. Uh, actually, this isn't a, this isn't a great example. It's more like I have a house. I have a self-assessed valuation on that house. I pay a tax to maintain the right to use that house, and those taxes then go to, you know, pave the, pave the road or to maintain the park that makes it nice to live in this certain location. That's more what it's like. With Nifty Apes and Harbinger style lending options, we have slightly different dynamics in that we don't have a self-assessed evaluation and then paying a tax. The lender is basically providing a self-assessed valuation in the terms of the loan that they offer. And then they have to actually provide the liquidity to back that offer. And so this is how you're getting kind of skin in the game for the user and they have to maintain that valuation or improve it over time in order to maintain the right to use or the right to receive those interest payments. So you can see how it's it's a very similar pattern, but not exactly the same, but we lose a little bit of that, that taxation where we can actually provide value back into the ecosystem that we're, where we derive value. And originally we were like, hey, we don't own these loans. You know, lenders don't own these loans. Every time it's refinanced, someone is gaining value, but you know, where, where, where do we, what do we do with this? So we wanted to, to maintain that regen ethos of Harbinger taxes. You know, it's very values aligned with our, our past. And really it's a way to, yeah, give back. We, we think protocols are public goods. We've turned loans into public goods and we want to give back to public goods, right? So if we can, we basically have created a meme around this called the regen collective needed a place to send this 1% of revenue. And so the region collective is trying to get as many web three protocols and, and platforms to give 1% of revenue to public goods as possible. It's kind of like a B Corp for the blockchain, right? And so we create this, this giant money hose from DeFi that can then funnel into public goods projects like Gitcoin or like Giveth or Ponvala or people who are running these funding distribution experiments that 
can not only benefit the Ethereum and the Web3 ecosystem, but also the world at large, right? You know, if the global lending market, it was $7 trillion in revenue in 2019. If we took 1% of that um, and gave it back to the planet or to public goods, it'd be $70 billion a year. And that's really an underlying why for me, and, and I know Zach shares this value as well. It's like, what if we took the global financial system and pointed it fighting climate change, for example? Like that would be radical. That would be revolutionary. That would be something that could, could make a big difference in the world. And that's, that's really where we want to drive um, you know, this, this protocol and this ethos. So, you know, we're, we're really making it a DGEN forward Mimi branding, and we want to make it really easy for people to get leverage and trade their NFTs. But in every transaction, we turn a DGEN into a regen, you know, try to make the world a better place. So I love that. I love it a lot. I really appreciate that you guys do that. And uh, I hope other people recognize uh, kind of what you guys are doing. And so I just have one more question before I'm going to let Zach jump in here and get a little more uh, technical with the security side of things. But I'm going to direct this last question for me at Zach Herring on uh, when is the release and like how long have you guys been working on it and how does it feel? Oh, my gosh. It feels so good. Um, Yeah, I mean, we've been working on it you know, I would say since September of last year. So I think tomorrow marks uh, our year anniversary birthday, the birthday of, uh, of Nifty Apes, uh, as it were. So um, no, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. It's one of those things where, you know, I was, ex- I was attracted to building on crypto because of the challenges. You know, if you go from web two to web three, there's like a whole new set of problems, right? A whole new set of design constraints around what you're building and you know that that really I'm, we're going to touch on security like that is like one of the biggest parts to it is that you have to these aren't just this isn't something on one hand this is something that you can yolo uh, on the other hand you can't right especially with things like nfts um we've had people talk about talk about their their they're punks and call them like forever punks, right? Like I've had literally in user interviews, someone say something to the effect of like, like, I want to pass this down. This I want to pass this punk down to my kids, right? That's a lot of trust. Like we talk, this is a trustless system, but that's still like a lot of trust that people are placing in code to treat their assets, you know, responsibly. And so, yeah, I mean, it feels amazing to, I'm really proud of the work that we have done up until this point to ensure um, that we are kind of taking that responsibility and that trust seriously. And I don't know, it's, it's, it was a long road to get to this, to the, to the starting line. Uh, I'm just thrilled that, thrilled that uh, we're getting close. I think, you know, we can safely say testnet is about three weeks away. Um, and then uh, we're expecting to have a pretty fast follow from from testnet to uh, to mainnet um, whenever we uh, whenever we launch. Congratulations! It's really exciting to hear. Yeah, super cool. It's um, coming fast. It sounds like that'll be what mid to late September. Yep. Knock knock on wood. <laughs> Nice. So the idea that we wanted to jump into with you guys for the open source audio security audit was kind of like, you you know, we have this massive problem with security and, and DeFi and crypto in general. We thought that, you know, if we could get on 
chat with you guys a little bit about your process, understand, you know, maybe help our listeners get a feel for what teams are doing. I think you guys, we were especially excited to talk to you guys because I know, you know, Kevin, you have a good deal of experience with security and crypto going back. And there just aren't a lot of folks that have that that level of, of uh, information underneath their belt. So, you know, when it comes to DeFi apps and protocols, there's this direct ability for the attacker to take something of value, right? In, in Web2, you've got credit cards, all types of personal information that then there's an additional step to monetize that. With crypto, it's it's just a direct punch, right? And so, of course, we've seen the black hats gravitate in this last bull run, especially. And um, we just thought it might be fun to jump in and kind of talk through the Nifty Ape setup and, you know, really dig into some of the interesting DeFi attack components and see how you guys have approached. Yeah, I'd love to. Let's get into it. Cool. So at the onset, I was thinking um, to kind of start with this idea of, you know, just give us like an overview of your tech stack, the Web 2 components, Web 3 components. How does it all play together? I know you're, you're on Ethereum. Is that right? Or is it Polygon? Yeah, we're, so we're launching to Ethereum mainnet uh, first, and then we'll, we'll deploy to other EVM compatible um, kind of scaling solutions, L2s and sidechains. Um, right now, mainnet's the only place where there's really a sufficient DeFi market and NFT market, which we need. Like we sit at that crossroads. So there's not really a protocol that has enough to support that. Polygon might be one of the feature. Uh, some of the other LTs are definitely on the roadmap as well. Cool. And then you have a Web2 front end, yep. correct? Yeah. So the stack is um, uh, so the the kind of the app side of it, right? We've got a TypeScript and React front end. Um, we're using like Chakra for components, stuff like that. Um, then we have for our backend, we're using um, AWS Lambs and a DynamoDB um, hosted on AWS. Um, so that's kind of like a traditional Web2 stack. Then we have that uh, the smart contracts are written in uh, Foundry using Forge uh, for testing. Um, we've got, you know, two to 3,000 lines of novel solidity and 20 to 30,000 lines of unit fuzz and integration tests. Um, so then those smart contracts are deployed to, um, you know, right now it's like local chains, um, then testnet and then mainnet. And then you're basically able to interact with those smart contracts using libraries like Web3.js or Ethers.js in that Web2 uh, full stack um, application. And so our, our application is, it uses the blockchain as the source of truth. So we have a backend, basically, it's kind of like a caching layer, you can sort of think of it um, like that, where we're performing transactions via the front end. Uh, we might be you know, storing data in a pending state, um, but then we're submitting that tra transaction to the blockchain, waiting for, um, you know, getting back a transaction receipt and waiting for that transaction to be finalized before actually you know, flipping a Boolean to, to a finalized state or, or not even writing that to the backend until we receive uh, an event that we've heard actually been occurred, like written and occurred on, um, on the blockchain. Does that, does that answer your question about the um, the stack? 
anything to dig into yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Would you tell us more about, you, you mentioned testing. Yeah. Uh, did you even fuzzing as well? What type of integration tests are you doing? I know that it's for a lot of developers, it's a, it's an afterthought or it's, it's just doesn't become a priority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, testing is such a fundamental component of security at that level of the stack. And could you tell us a little bit about how those tests are set up or, you know, maybe what you're using? Yeah, totally. So yeah, um, as I said, we're using Foundry and Forge, which kind of like all of the the cutting edge uh, Solidity developers I know, we're all kind of moving over in that direction, that tech stack. It was it's developed by some guys over at um, Paradigm, the research group. Um, and so it's all written in Solidity. You're not doing any context switching between like JavaScript and hard hat or, or Solidity. So I like it for that reason. It, it's also really fast and um, you don't have to deal with big numbers and stuff like that. So that's what we're using. Um, kind of the architecture is we're really doing, we had like had an original test suite of like unit tests um, and it's more like traditional style unit tests. Um, and then we kind of did a second round of testing across the entire application where we're um, basically implementing fuzzing and then integrations. We've got a mock environment and, and an integration environment. And, one set just provides you know faster faster feedback cycle if you're not doing integrations because otherwise you need to like fork mainnet state you know query the chain for certain sets of data um, and so it can just take a long time for that uh, to occur. But anyways, you're essentially what you're doing is you are every time you're running the the test suite you're setting up you're basically deploying these the suite of contracts you're setting up you know an initial variable state. Um, you're then, you know, depositing liquidity, maybe you're executing a loan, maybe you're trying to go all the way through the refinance flow. Maybe you're, you're testing whether someone can, can repay, uh, the loan who's, you know, not, not actually the owner of the loan. Um, you're going through all the different cases. And then, so what the fuzzing does is it, um, takes a large bound. Basically you, you can set different parameters, but in the broadest case, it would go for like zero to near infinity, right? Like you went to 56 minus one um, set of range and try to see if you can break um, or come up with errors, right? Does the, pa- does the test still pass if I try this really broad range of numbers, uh, which is super useful, right? Like we found certain math errors, you know, um, in, you know, some of them are derived from compound and some of them are in our own math. Um, and it's basically like, once you get down to like, basically compound the, the C tokens and compound only have go to um, eight decimals. So they, they, they basically truncate off, um, like 12, 12 decimals of significance. And so when you convert from a C token back to an underlying ERC 20, like die, um, you lose some of that fidelity. So it rounds just ever so slightly, you know, at the 12th decimal place, um, mm. like, of some numbers so you'd expect to get back a whole number but it's like you know nine 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 set of value and so doing fuzz testing you can find little things like that or like oh maybe i can i can push it into an overflow problem where um you know i would expect this math to work but oh you know it, it doesn't because we're you know the values outside of the bounds of memory right in the system so that's more of like fuzz testing 
again, right? Unit, you're just going through all the tests, all the, all the different cases, what we expect to see happen. And then we go into the fuzz testing where we overlay that into the unit test and say, okay, can we, can we break these unit tests by testing large bounded numbers? Um, and then the integration is where we're actually like forking main net state, interacting directly with um, you know, con other contracts that we're integrated with. And so we have this set up for compound and for open C right? and C port specifically, right? So um, when a lender comes to the protocol, they're depositing that liquidity and that gets put into compound underneath. So you're essentially minting and redeeming C tokens um, so we can ensure that lenders are receiving interest passively over the life of the loan or actually the, over their kind of their user life cycle with the protocol, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, you just want to, to be able to interact directly with those protocols to see, do they act as expected? If we go into a more live environment, is it actually going to execute properly? If I'm gonna go try to do purchase with financing on Seaport, like does the loan actually execute? Or am I just like creating a mock environment and like, yeah, I assume it will work if I provide these values or can I go in and, you know, can I actually do fuzzing on top of my integration? Like, can I, at what points does the protocol break down? And, and I need to know exactly, you know, what values that occurs at. And so either I can mitigate it through code or I can like just, hey, user, like this is a potential outcome. You know, you might not want to take these certain actions. Um, different ways of handling it. But yeah, that's a, that's a general overview of our strategy. And um, you know, it took us a long time to get there, but we, we, we feel pretty darn confident in our testing. And, and then couple that with the audits that we have um, in place, which are really looking more at an adversarial type context. Um, like, okay, how, can I, how could I break this if I were trying to attack this protocol? You know, everything works as expected. All the math works as we expect it to. You know, it works with all the integrations, but okay, how can I like game the system essentially? Fascinating. That is, sounds like an incredible amount of work. I remember doing some smart contract testing when it started to become kind of like the push of a button to fork mainnet. And it was so cool to be able to like fork mainnet die or compound contracts and do some basic interactions but you guys are, you're talking about multiple, you've got OpenSea, which is a non-trivial app, you know, on-chain application and Compound as well. So that is a, an incredible amount of work, it sounds like, to get that set up. Now, based on what you've seen kind of out there with, with other applications or people that you've worked with, would you say that this is a common level? Is this kind of like the industry standard? Or are you guys pushing, you know, yourself into uh, kind of a different level of security with this setup? Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen and, and worked with in the past, I, I feel like it's a it's another level. Um, I think it's like the, where the bar should be. Um, I think, you know, we're trying to be an institutional grade financial protocol, right? It's dressed, it's dressed up in the Mimi brand and flashing lights and shiny metal and all those kinds of things, but we want, this is very serious, right? And we plan for there to be many millions of dollars uh, flowing through the protocol. We, and not only millions of dollars, but it's you know, crypto and it's, it's actual assets. And it's not just gonna be pictures of monkeys, it's gonna be houses. And we want that to run 
uh, as expected and to not have security vulnerabilities. And that's just a very high bar. We don't, we don't want the reputational risk um, that comes with, with the major hack. And we're going to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. It sounds like a really excellent setup. Um, the, the on-chain DeFi stuff is super sexy and I have a bunch of other questions about that, but real quick, before we kind of go deeper, could we talk a little bit about DNS and for, for those that might not be familiar, the, the system that translates domain names back to IP addresses, we've recently seen a number of hacks where, you know, um, you know, attackers generally are going to go after the weakest link, right? Whatever they need to do, even if it's relatively simple. So we've seen a lot this summer of kind of DNS hijacking. And uh, so you, you might have these great secure contracts, but if someone overtakes your DNS, clones your website and points uh, your users to a different contract, they could potentially initiate a loan with a malicious contract. Have you guys taken any steps to ensure the security of your DNS or how those records are you know, kept? Yeah, totally. So um, just to reiterate, um, the major, there's a number of issues with DNS, like uh, DNS wasn't designed um, like with these kind of adversarial games in mind. Um, so there are a couple of vectors of attack. Uh, the most significant ones that we've seen are like DNS hijacking and, and DNS spoofing. Um, and those are mainly addressed through using a provider who provides like DNSSEC. And so, you know, it's like Cloudflare or AWS, it basically sets up a, um, you know, a trusted chain of communication between different actors in the DNS system. Um, and so that's typically how this is handled at a, at a high level. Um, right now, you know, we just have like our front end, there's no app, like we're not deployed yet. So we haven't really set up that DNSSEC on our, on our um, main surface, but as we de actually deploy the application, with the front end, uh, we definitely plan to have that set up and running. Um, so it's something we're aware of, haven't executed on at this point because there hasn't been the need to. But yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And moving then on into contract audits. So key component of uh, securing DeFi applications and you know this is the scenario where you go out and you get an outside firm generally to audit your contracts, they deliver a nice kind of report. You get to decide what you maybe do and don't want to fix and, um, you know, kind of go on from there. There's a lot of different firms emerging to, you know, uh, deliver these audits for, for DeFi apps. Can you tell us kind of your, you know, high level or in detail about your process for finding your auditors and, you know, how those audits went? I mean, what was the process like and anything you learned, you know, during that process? Yeah, totally. Um, so typically finding an audit can be very hard and can take a long time. And like these, these firms, especially the, the name brand, like high profile firms, they're booked out months in advance. Right. Um, and so for us, we had initial implementation and wanted to get it audited and we we're trying to move pretty fast. And so I reached out to my whole security network and uh, Quantstamp was able to, to get us in, in the door pretty quickly. You know, they were excited about what we were building and, and they usually keep some bandwidth available so they can do this sort of thing. Um, so we initiated that process with Quantstamp 
And then we were also talking to Sherlock. Uh, we actually, I met Jack from Sherlock um, through the kernel network. And we were just talking about, you know, he saw my security background with e-security. And so we just got on the call and told about Nifty Apes. And um, I think what they're doing over there is really, really interesting. I really like it because what they're doing is they're aligning the incentives of the audit firm and the auditor with the security of the protocol. Um, most firms, it's like they provide a report, you know, here's your, here's our findings. You can you know, choose to address things or not. Typically there's then a period of like fixed review. So it's like, I don't know, two to three weeks of initial audit and you have two to three weeks to um, make fixes and address things that you want to. And there's typically like a, usually half a day to a week of fix review to make sure you didn't introduce any vulnerabilities with your fixes. Um, and so we went through that process with QuantStamp. Um, they found a few things, um, some interesting like adversarial games, as I said, I'm happy to talk more about that, that in detail and how we addressed some of those. Um, once we had that, we pretty quickly moved into the audit with, uh, with Sherlock and it would probably would have been better for us to take a little bit more time. We were a little bit rushed in finding or in executing those fixes um, in time for, for Sherlock. But yeah, got through their process. Um, they're, they're interesting in that they provide a little bit more uh, in real time feedback. So I was able to follow along with the auditors you know, in a GitHub repo as they identified the issues and provide comments, you know, address things as they came up rather than where with, with, with QuantStamp, it was just three weeks and I didn't hear from them for three weeks. Um, they just kind of went off and, and found, found some, some interesting things. But um, so Sherlock was nice to kind of have that in, in real time feedback. And then basically, yeah, there we're planning to have um, insurance on our contracts up to $10 million um, for, for ex exploits. Um, and then Sherlock will also run um, up to a million dollars of a bug bounty through Immunify. So they kind of bundle a set of services that is really nice and aligns the incentives of the protocol, the audit and the auditors. Um, so I really like that. And then QuantStamp is, yeah, just a great firm that's got a great track record in the past. And um, yeah, that was kind of our process and and how it went. We're, we're currently going through final fix review. So there were some things that came out of the, the Sherlock audit um, that we, we ended up making changes on and then implementing a whole host of other tests around. So it's kind of each firm wants to take one last look before they're, uh, they're gonna sign off on it and, and give a, a proper final report. So that's, that's where we're currently at. Cool, that is super interesting. So they have um, insurance baked in as well as, as an offering, Sherlock does? Yeah. So basically they're, yeah, they're, they're right. They're trying to align those, those incentives. And so they're, um, they do a couple different things to mitigate their own risk, but that's, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of backing their work saying like, we're, mm -hmm. we're really gonna, we stand behind this, the security work that we're um, offering and the kind of the, the standard that we hold for the industry. And so we're gonna, we're gonna put money where our mouth is and, you know, provide insurance. There are premiums that we have to pay. You know, it's, it is an insurance kind of protocol on top of an auditing service. Um, but yeah, that, I find that really interesting and something that 
as a security nerd and, and a builder, I really like that. It's like, okay, <laughs> you're not just going to give me a report and walk away. It's like, you're going to give yeah. me a report and you're going to continue to support me. And um, if anything happens, right, we're in this together now. That's excellent. And that answered another question I had for you. They also, uh, you said, handle a bug bounty program. Yeah, that's correct. So um, and Sherlock that cover. Oh, go ahead. Uh, does that cover the contracts and the web too? Or is that just the contracts? Um, that's a good question. I think it's just the contracts. Um, I don't think it would, like, you know, if our, if our DNS got hijacked, I don't think it would cover it, but I'm not sure about that. I, I need to check in. That's a good question. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. I like seeing all, all these elements at play. I mean, the, I think that bug bounties can be so helpful. Giving white hats a legitimate route is just an important step. And I know I could tell looking over your website, you know, you guys are um, mentioning security right there on the front page. And it says you've committed 20% of your treasury to funding audits and purchasing insurance. So that's, um, it seems like you guys are really forward thinking. I think we're, we're, uh, it's awesome that we got to test out this open source audit with you guys. Cause you, you've really put some time and effort into this. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's one of the things we're excited to talk about. Um, cause it is something we're, we're really serious about. And we think it is a, it is a differentiator, right? Not just in the product offering, but how the team approaches security and approaches mm -hmm. creating a protocol. That's important if, if we think it matters. Yeah. So moving into the really, uh, really fun, exciting side of like DeFi hacking, these game theoretical bugs, right? This kind of new class of DeFi attacks, the stuff didn't really exist previous to DeFi. This is the kind of attacks where we're looking at like the relationships between pools and balances and the connected systems, uh, flash loans and these types of things. I, I think that in, you know, the future, we're going to look back on 2021, 2022, hopefully it stops there, but maybe into 2023 is kind of like the golden age for these on-chain hacks. I mean, it's really, there's some, some trivial bugs that have led to massive payouts for, for black hats there. It, it's just been pure chaos out there. And traditionally from what I've seen, audits don't cover a lot of this stuff. And it seems like you guys with your, um, some of your fuzz testing, you might be getting into where you're testing for some of these different scenarios, but could you tell us, like, have you guys, um, <clears throat> you know, looked into these or considered this type of attack uh, against nifty apes and, you know, what can you do to defend against it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first off, it's a, it's kind of like, a you try to look at all the, the historical exploits, like, Okay, let's not do those. Let's make sure we have the reentrancy guard on all of our major functions, right? For example, um, then it goes to okay. Well, are we using um, like a lot of it has to do with oracles? Is a lot of these like game theory at least in, in the recent history, right? Like, um, can I manipulate a price to to get myself into a certain position that I can benefit from? Um, our protocol is completely unopinionated. Um, as far as uh, pricing goes, it's up to the lender and the borrower to uh, agree upon themselves. So we kind of um, take out a major sector of attack by not having that other, it's not related to other on-chain data, 
right? It's, so you don't have oracles, like oracle manipulation yeah. is, is not exactly. a that whole breaker. Exactly. That whole segment of potential attack isn't, doesn't apply. Um, you could still like have social engineering, right? Like, you know, somebody like tries to pump the price uh, on a collection and then a lender lends against that collection, a borrower borrows, uh, and then the price tanks on that collection, right? Um, you could see the borrowers like, you know, essentially selling their asset um, at some given price that's agreed upon in the loan. And then the, the asset isn't worth that much. Mm-hmm. There's still like, but that's not, that's not a protocol driven attack vector. That's like basically social engineering. Um, some of the game theoretical bugs that came up for us, um, they're and basically the ways that we, we um, were addressing them is through different premiums. Um, and we actually have a slashing mechanism. And so um, Nifty Apes is trying to keep a totally clean, unopinionated uh, protocol as much as possible. And there's only a few places where we remain slightly opinionated. And, and we actually, it's not even fully opinionated. It's, it's, it's like, hey, you can take this action, you can take this greedy action, but you have to pay a premium to do so. So one, one example of that is, right, lenders can buy out the loan at any time. And so as a, um, as a lender, I could go out and grieve another lender out of the, basically the, the cost of gas. So it's like, hey, lender A has uh, refinanced a loan. Lender B just wants to grieve that person. So they're going to refinance the same loan in the, in the next block. So anytime, anytime, anytime lender A tries to take out a loan, lender B is automatically refinancing them. Lender A is never making any money um, and they're just paying the cost of gas, right? And so what, what we chose to implement was that we, we guarantee that lenders earn a certain amount of interest. Uh, for the originating lender, we actually give them you know, a 50 basis point um, uh, premium uh, lender. So the originating lender um, has the loan, lender A comes along and refinances them. They have to pay them 50 basis points in order to take over that loan. That's one set of premiums. And in order to, jo- to, to address this, this griefing problem, um, basically we guarantee a 25 basis point um, amount of either interest earned or um, whatever the difference between 25 basis points and what has currently been earned has to be paid as a premium. So in this case, like lender A, you know, it's only been one block and lender B wants to refinance them out. We basically, lenders are earning interest on an interest per second basis. So there's some amount of way that they are accruing per second. So let's say it's only like, I don't know, 12 seconds since the last block. So they're earning some very small amount of way. And the, the delta between that amount and whatever 25 basis points on the principal would be, lender B now has to pay as a premium to lender A. So lender B can still take that greedy action they can still try to grief lender A so they're never holding a loan for more than one block, but now they have to pay a premium to do so, right? And so that's one way to mitigate this game theory bug. Another one that, that does actually involve flash loans, um, you know, a lender can, uh, to make an offer or to refinance a loan, they have to have that amount of value um, in their balance on Nifty Apes, like the positive, right? But what you could do is you take out a flash loan, you deposit it in Nifty Apes, I refinance the loan, 
I make an off, I refinance the loan with an offer like a million dollars, right? Like a $10,000 asset. So I'm, I'm offering a, a really high amount to try to squat on the loan so I can hold it for longer and earn more interest. Um, and one way to deal with that is we can't fully stop that from happening. But what we can do is if um, that amount of liquidity isn't available, when a borrower goes to draw down that additional capital, right? Like, oh, great, someone's offered me a million dollars. I want that line of credit. I'm going to take that down. But really, it's there's nothing there, right? There's they've basically deposited the capital, refinanced the loan with a really high value. They pay back the flash loan, but like they withdraw from the fees to repay the flash loan. Um, if a borrower goes to pull down that capital and it's not there, then the profit that has been made by that lender um, is slashed and the amount on the loan is reset to whatever liquidity is actually still available. Um, hmm. And so you're actually able to, yeah, people can take a, an, an adversarial action, but you're now removing their profit incentive for performing that action, right? Um, so it, it can get it, it can, they can make, they can attempt to make the system go wonky, but it has a self-correcting mechanism with a disincentive for performing the action in the first place. And the borrower awesome. and the borrower has the incentive to try to, right? They get a free loan uh, or a free segment of time on the loan, at least. Um, if they can catch a lender extended over leveraging themselves and extending an offer that they can't provide liquidity for. In what stage of your development process did you start looking at these types of attacks? Yeah. Um, so we tried to imagine them ourselves as we were developing them, but it really took, um, I think there were some game theory bugs in, in found in, in both audits, but it really started with that quant stamp audit. That was where we did, I'm pretty sure we did the gas griefing issue we outlined, and as well as this, this kind of flash loan attack and slashing mechanism we iterated on with quant stamp. And I think there was maybe an issue that derived like originally we wanted to make the, the slashing mechanism super sharp. You we were like, okay, if you, uh, if you're not, don't have supply enough liquidity, then um, like, we're just going to slash the, like the principle of the loan from like your balance or whatever, or from, from the balance of the loan. So it's like, if you offer a million dollars, it would actually deduct the difference from your balance from the principle of the loan. So the, the borrower would actually get like their loan paid for. So it'd be really, really sharp. But then there's other ways to game that, right? Like then the borrower tries to force that situation and and, and get a, actually a, like a free asset out of it. This is a bit too sharp. And so then we had to, we had to come back. It's like, okay, well, we're just going to slash the profit, right? It's people might still try to take that action and get away with it, which they could but the consequences aren't so severe. You know, we're not slashing anybody's principal. So people aren't losing money that they put in, but they could lose the, the ability to make money if they're acting in, you know, a, it's, it's not necessarily even malicious, but, but it's a greedy action. Like we really tried to make it when anybody's taking in a greedy action, that's, that's where you have to pay an additional premium. That's where Nifty Apes can, we, we take some premiums in a couple of different places. Like, it, hey, if you're not offering significant terms, or you can refinance the loan and increase the line of credit by one way and take over the loan. 
that's really only benefiting that refinancing lender. There's no you know, benefit to the ecosystem. There's no better pricing signal. Uh, the borrower is not really getting any better terms. So we enforce, hey, you have to have a, a flat 25 basis point increase in your terms, or you have to pay a 25 basis point premium. And that's an aggregate, you know, the amount, the duration on the loan and the interest rates. In aggregate, they have to be 25 basis points improved on the, the previous terms or the 25 basis point premium is imposed. Uh, and that you know, that goes to the protocol because you're really just like griefing the, the, the protocol and the ecosystem when you take that greedy action. So we're not going to, again, we're not going to prevent you from taking it, but in order to do so, you have to you know, pay us a little intact. bit of money. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So recently, unprecedented sanctions from the U.S. Treasury against Tornado Cash. This is the first time we've seen contract addresses themselves put on the sanctions list. This has added new elements of complexities for DeFi developers. Have you guys, certain that you guys have probably discussed or talked about this, do you have plans? How are you going to handle this? Um, you, you using, you know, kind of the traditional approach of just filtering at the web two level. Um, what have you guys, what are you guys thinking on these sanctions? Yeah, totally big hot button issue. Yeah. We have a, the privilege of getting to talk to a number of really high quality, high profile lawyers in the space through our, through our like lead investors. And so you know, big thanks to them. They knew who they are. I don't know if I can, we can, we haven't announced uh, full funding around at this point in time, but hat tip, everybody claps all around. So yeah, our approach to this is we're, we're using a approach of progressive decentralization. Right now we are a US-based team with a US-based entity that has, you know, we're going to be the owner of this contract that has deployed it. So we're going to be the owner of this centralized web two front end. We, you know, we're in U.S. jurisdiction, so we're going to comply with U.S.-based law. Right now, uh, we actually implement sanctions at the contract level, so we're using the Chainalysis, basically, sanctions oracle. So any transaction that um, is performed by an address on the sanctions list will not be able to actually perform that transaction. I don't believe, I, th I believe it's only addresses on the sanctions list. Chain analysis doesn't do like a second or third or fourth degree like hop, um, like some other oracles do. But we're just being, yeah, strict on, if you're on the OFAC list, you can't you know, deposit capital, you can't take out a loan, you can't withdraw that capital. There is a, you know, pause functionality. So if it does become, you know, untenable for the ecosystem or the community, if there were to be a DAO or community in the future who chose to unpause that, they, they could. So that, that functionality is there to, you know, if it becomes untenable, but that's not our intention for it. It's really, um, you know, we're in U.S. jurisdiction and we're, we're abiding by those laws. The larger debate of like, you know, should, should validators be uh, screening transactions and all those things, it's a slightly different conversation and i'm happy to go there if you want to but but that's how we're we're handling it at nifty apes it's like hey we're we're going to be progressively centralized as the team 
no longer controls this, somebody else might make a decision to uh, not abide by those, those regulations, but that's not something that we're doing, right? We're not making that choice if it happens. Yeah, no, all makes sense. DGen in me is thinking about what would happen if someone were to take over the uh, chain analysis oracle and cause complete havoc. Well, and that's that's why we have the pause function, right? It's like, oh, if this becomes like a you know compromised in some way, we're able to we have an out to then uh, address the situation. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I feel like it's like a would be kind of like the holy grail for for the black hats if they could uh, somehow throw that oracle out of whack. I'll have to look more into the the chain analysis on chain. I heard a little bit about, about it, but I thought it was just kind of like a sort of like a blacklist, but I guess maybe there's more to it. And so kind of wrapping things up here, really, really interesting info. If you had to give, you know, one piece of advice to let's not even go on like the, the builder side, but more just as a, as an individual in crypto, like one piece of advice around, how to help stay secure, you know, something that you do maybe that uh, you think is, is interesting or a little ahead of the pack from password management or, or anything. Is there anything that comes to mind that you would recommend to our listeners on how to kind of up their security game? Yeah, totally. I mean, just like general digital hygiene, like go get a hardware wallet. It's number one, like don't keep stuff in a hard, in a hot wallet. That's silly. Uh, as far as digital hygiene goes, it's like, okay, use a password manager. Password managers allow you to use unique passwords on every site you go to. Have the highest level of 2FA available on any system. And that, that means having a YubiKey on critical systems. So a YubiKey or a, or a hard, some hardware type security key. And so that would go on like your password manager, on your Google, especially your GitHub other kind of social media stuff typically. And that's like your, that's your general like baseline. And then you can get more paranoid from there. You could have your, like, you could just have your DeFi laptop where like I'm only interacting with certain things. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to prevent key loggers and, and stuff like that in that situation. You can put a YubiKey directly on your computer and like use it as a, a 2FA for your root level system access different things you can do, but that gets, we're getting more into the advanced level. So using a password manager, using a hardware wallet, that's the first steps for, for anybody who might be a beginner. Awesome. sounds great. Let's jump into just a couple of outro questions here. I don't know, Hunt, do you want to, do you want to jump on some of these? Yeah, you you know I'm excited to to ask them about their musical taste. I'm a pretty big musical person. So, what's exciting you in music recently? Any uh, artists that we should be checking out or knowing? I know Kevin, you've turned me on to some music in the past. Yeah, totally. I mean, my my uh, biggest stuff right now is still I call it like melodic house, and so Lane Eight um, is a big one. Ben Bomer. I just went to the Anjuna Deep Open Air in Denver. Um, I've got uh, Sylvanesso and Odessa coming up here in Denver. Um, those are probably my, my biggest stuff right now. Uh, Zach Herring, what are you listening to? Uh, my little brother has got me into uh, speed metal, uh, back into speed metal. So he like bought me uh, the Archfire 
uh, Relentless Mutation on vinyl. So I've been enjoying that. And then, um, I don't know, I've been going back and, and uh, catching up on some JPEG Mafia and some uh, JPEG Mafia. And then I think like the Everything's Fine album by uh, uh, Jean Grey. Still kind of blowing my mind. It kind of it bums me out, honestly, that she hasn't she hasn't released anything since I think like twenty seventeen. So, those are kind of like been the two ones that I've been listening to a lot lately. Speed metal. I got to get more familiar with oh. speed metal. That sounds amazing. Uh, you'll have to send me oh, some of that. Absolutely. Uh, what about tech gadgets? A- any tech gadgets that you've uh, come across recently that you can't live without? Oh, uh, come across recently. I did put it in order in for a, a portable monitor recently, so I can have more than just my laptop monitor when I'm traveling around. In general, I just I, I have these Bose noise canceling headphones. I forget what model, but I've had them for like five years. I've gone through like different sets of like the ear pads as they've degraded, but the battery's still amazing on them. They make my life on an airplane so much better. I just use them all the time, and I. I yeah, I can't live without my, my headphones. Plus one on the Bose noise canceling. What about you, Zach? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going the opposite direction on the noise, on the headphones. I, I, uh, my wife got me a bone, bone conducting headphone headphones last year. Um, and they've been, they've been great. Like I'd like to work every day, just kind of like remaining, remaining, uh, cognizant of the cars around you while also listening to an audiobook has been fantastic. And then, like, in terms of other gadgets, I've kind of been experimenting with, like, digital minimalism. So uh, there's, like, a Simplify launcher for Android, which just kind of, like, clears out all of the notification and just kind of, like, reduces the complexity down to, like, a a list of apps and that sort of thing. And uh, I've really been enjoying that, honestly. Like, I've enjoyed kind of, like, experimenting with other types of, other types of, like, presentation layers and, like, controlling controlling notifications, essentially, um, and attention via like these sort of like attention attention control apps has been really nice. Nice. That's uh, really interesting to hear. I'd have to check that out. Uh, books. Um, best book you've read recently or any books in general that have had a notable impact on you that you would suggest somebody read? I'll start out with Kevin Seagraves. So this year I've been listening to, so I mostly do audiobooks. I do some, some physical as well, but audiobooks listen to dune and then dune messiah so good as far as sci-fi goes like man i hadn't uh, people had always told me to, to read those books and i just didn't and then super entertaining super super entertaining non-fiction books i've been listening to this book called complex ptsd i was at a at a friend's like surf trip and retreat um in brazil recently and, and one of my friends said that it was just hugely impactful on her and understanding how her social interactions are going and like understanding herself and her emotions. And it's basically looking at the patterns that are developed at a very young age, kind of before we even develop memories and how our parents were interacting with us. And so we developed these coping mechanisms for mental, emotional, like well-being that were helpful at the time, but not necessarily um, helpful in like in current life. And so kind of, it just goes through those patterns and, how you can identify them and address them, like kind of tools for, for coping. And I just found it super interesting to look at myself as well as like my, my close relationships. And yeah, just 
basically be a, a happier, healthier, healthier person. So yeah, uh, big impact on me for that one. I'll definitely need to check that out. What about you, Zach Herring books? Um, I'm in the middle of what technology wants by uh, Kevin Kelly. Uh, he's like one of the co-founders of Wired. Um, that's fascinating. That is like a, that's like someone who's been studying technology for probably two plus decades, really just kind of jamming philosophically on how technology evolves and grows. And he has this theory that technology is actually like has its own wants, right? Like he says, like I'm I'm literally anthropomorphizing technology right now, but he's like, but I think there's something to it. And he makes a pretty good case for it. Um, so it's actually a really interesting book in kind of like the philosophy of technology, which I've really been enjoying. Um, also working on the power broker right now, which is like everybody else. It's like a 1200 page book. It's taking me forever to read. Um, I'd say like on the most impactful side, like as a builder, um, Clayton Christensen's competing against luck is like has ideas of you know, I read it two or three years ago and I still come back to. Um, and then if you want something that is feels like fiction but isn't, um, River of Doubt by uh, Candice Millard uh, is amazing. Um, it's basically about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the expedition to chart the, uh, the Amazon. And uh, it's like one of those things. I read it during like um, 2020. So I read it during, you know, we, we were experiencing a once in a hundred year, uh, you know, once in a hundred year pandemic and all that other stuff and things seemed pretty rough. Uh, and then you, you actually read like what folks went through to do things that we now take for granted. <laughs> um, these guys were like literally bushwhacking 20 miles uh, with 107 degree fever uh, and malaria. Um, and you're just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So uh, river of doubt by Candace Millard gets like one of my highest recommendations. I think I've bought that book set six or seven times. Um, not because I've lost those copies, but because whenever someone's birthday comes up and I haven't gotten them anything yet, I'll just feel like I'm just going to get a river of doubt. This book's crazy. So that's uh, that's those are the ones that I would recommend right now. Great answers. And my birthday's January 11th. In case you were right. wondering, do you mean your uh, your address, man? Uh, it's it's happening. Uh, my, I'll, I'll definitely DM you that my address. You guys are inspiring uh, with all these books and. Uh, We'll, we'll end it off with what's uh, your preferred place to get crypto news? I know it's sometimes tough to get the signal through the noise. Um, where are you finding your most up-to-date information, Kevin Seagraves? Yeah, I mean, definitely just being able to sit in a room with Zach every day, he's, he filters so much news and content that, um, that I probably from him, or at least the hot takes, like the analysis Definitely Zach um, is like one of the smartest people I know. So I love getting to jam with him every day. Other than that, it's really just like crypto Twitter. Um, everything gets filtered through there. Like all the big kind of talking heads, you know, the bankless guys, you know, the Daily Gway, at least in the Ethereum ecosystem, they're all tweeting all the time. That's kind of where everything happens first. Um, and so just following kind of higher signal people um, in the crypto space through crypto Twitter and I get a little tweet, a little thread that I can um, scroll through and I don't have to spend too much time trying not to get sucked into the social media too much, um, but keeps me up to date on what's happening at least. Awesome. Well, if, if Zach is uh, feeding you the hot takes, Zach, where are you getting these hot takes? Where are your crypto news coming um, from? I mean, yeah, through crypto Twitter. I think the, the, the streaming it that is crypto Twitter uh, is one of the big ones. 
Um, but I also love, uh, so like the breakdown, uh, coin desks, uh, uh, that's pretty great. Um, I really like, I've really been digging, like I've been looking for like crunchier financial analysis, um, odd lots, um, it's actually been pretty good for that. Like I used to be a big fan of marketplace and, and, uh, some of those others. And I feel like they've gotten a little bit more like pop newsy, um, odd lots has been fantastic, uh, lately. I've really been enjoying that just in terms of like, unfortunately crypto, now more of a correlated asset, more responsive to macro trends. So I think it's actually more, it's important not just to know about what's happening in crypto, but know what's happening in the rest of the world and how that might bleed over and start affecting it, right? Like, especially, I mean, we've just got done talking about OFAC, right? Like that's, that's crypto is going to become more and more correlative as it eats more and more of the world. So Odd Lots uh, has been great. Freakonomics has been really good. And then on the crypto analysis, yeah, uh, the breakdown's awesome. And then I also really like Zero Knowledge. Uh, zero Knowledge, I think, is, I can't remember if it's Zero Knowledge FM, which is Zero Knowledge. Um, and then obviously, iDeja, huge, huge fan. Thanks, Zach. We appreciate that. We're huge fans of you guys. And uh, for anybody out there, if they want to uh, follow Nifty Apes and their projects, we'll definitely post some info in the show notes. But why don't you uh, give us a quick shout on where uh, our listeners can keep up to date with what's going on with Nifty Apes? Totally. Follow us on Twitter at Nifty Apes. Um, I'm at Captain Seagraves on Twitter. URL is, is niftyapes.money. Niftyapes.com also redirects. So check us out there. Zach, what's the best way to get hold of you? Oh, uh, Twitter. Yeah, at Z Herring, Z and then H E R R I N G, like the fish. Uh, and my DMs are open. So get questions or whatever. Happy to, always happy to chat with folks who are uh, excited to, to jam uh, in the space for sure. This has been a blast, gentlemen. Really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun, especially for our first interview. So thanks for doing it. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Super fun. Really interesting. This has been uh, IDGen episode 13. And uh, you can find us at IDGen.fm if you want to hear more. We do weekly news stories, trying to get some interviews and these open source audits in the mix. Thank you guys for your time. And we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.